0: Welcome in to the Paul Kuharski Podcast. I'm Paul Kuharski from paulkuharski.com. This is a production of 440 Sports. I'm happy you're here. Thanks to Jaspers for sponsoring this. Uh, today, we are going to discuss the perception of the offensive line versus the perception of the Titans wide receiver group. I'm going to tell you a story about how I tried to get my mother drunk when she was an innocent victim. Uh, We're going to look at the Ravens playing at the Titans in London. Some news of the obvious. And Blake Bedingfield will join me to talk about Colton Dow, the Titans' seventh-round draft pick, who he worked with between the end of college season and uh, the draft as well as the scouting process and scouts in general. He was one for the Titans for 19 years. Uh, mentioned my name three times, told you what we're going to talk about, mentioned the sponsor and the guest. We're ready to go. So uh, Mike Herndon, who writes for the site and tweets a lot of smart things about the Titans, uh tweeted about this and then wrote some more about it at paulkuharski.com that, you know, he's not so convinced that the Titans offensive line problems are solved. Peter Skoransky, the 11th pick in the draft, certainly looks like a good player and could be the best Titans offensive lineman in very short order. But the other three additions all, you know, are not guaranteed to be great, or good offensive linemen. Andre Dillard has a first round pedigree, but didn't play like a first rounder in Philadelphia where he had very good coaching, um, got injured a couple times and beaten out and, and and didn't really have a role. And he came to the Titans off of the discount pile. Uh, Daniel Brunskill um, was kind of the sixth offensive lineman in San Francisco, and he got beaten out last year and was not a regular starter. And Jalen Duncan comes in as a somewhat raw uh, sixth-round draft pick who's going to need some some time and work to get up to NFL starting quality, uh, for sure, we would picture um, and all of these guys are going to be coached by a, a, a first-time NFL position coach in Jason Hoteling. So um, I, I think Mike raises an interesting point here, and I think obviously we all feel better about the Titans on the offensive line because they had problems across the line last year, particularly at three spots where – um, the very bad Dennis Daly filled in for Taylor Lewan at left tackle. Aaron Brewer was overmatched at left guard. We're now going to see him move to center. And Nicholas petit Frere went through rookie growing pains at at right tackle. We feel better about the offensive line because the offensive line has four new guys on it, right? So we say, <clears throat> well, the Titans are trying here to improve the group by getting new people. But, you know, are these new people better than Taylor Luan at his best? Probably not. Roger Saffold at his best. You know, those days are are over. Nate Davis at his best. You know, probably not. Um, You know, you're expecting... uh, learning curves from uh brewer as he moves to center where he'll still qualify as undersized and from petite prayer, whose um, liabilities last year were covered up because we were busy talking about daily. And if we weren't talking about daily, we were talking about Brewer. So look, I think the Titans are going to be better up front because Dennis Daly's not there, because Brewer's not at left guard, Um, and because I expect Tim Kelly to put together a better offense for them, Um, and I expect them to be healthier. So if Skoronsky's the left tackle, I would hope they get 17 games out of Skoronsky, who was a very healthy football player at Northwestern. If he's the left guard, I would expect the same. But I think Mike r- r- raises a, a fair point, like why are we automatically presuming that the Titans get the best out of everybody they brought in on this group where they don't come in with fantastic pedigrees? Skoransky does, but Dillard does not. Um, Brunskill does not. And Duncan does not. Now, you compare this, we're certainly all down on wide receiver. Well, what's the number one thing they did at wide receivers? They didn't bring in bodies. So they get, they're get they getting benefit of the doubt on the offensive line from bringing in people. Well, at wide receiver, they brought in two people who – you know, have less than impressive pedigrees. in Chris Moore, who's a replacement-level wide receiver, um, you know, nobody the caliber of, of Skoronsky, nobody even with the previous uh, history of Dillard having been a, a first-round pick four years prior in in the eyes of, of a good football team. And then a seventh round pick in Colton Dowell, who's a, a nice and intriguing player, uh, but who's going to take time. And we'll talk about him in a little bit. Um, but the difference here is that the Titans attacked one position with numbers and uh, did not attack the other position with numbers and that the lead guy of the numbers on the offensive line was the 11th pick in the draft who was highly regarded as uh, a technically sound guy at his position. And we see no comp at wide receiver. So it's an interesting way to look at things. I think the offensive line will be better. I don't know how much better. And I'm pleased to see that Mike raised this question. and I think most people would have expected that I would have, uh, you know, been the one to to raise this opinion. And Mike maybe would have been uh, on on the, the side that that I'm on, where I have maybe a little better expectation that he does. Good fodder for conversation. I'll be talking more shortly about this um, with Blake. Uh, so stay tuned for that. I wrote this week a little bit about. Um, the Titans and their expectations this season, which are piss poor. Um, You know, they're, they're picked to finish by all four sports books that have betting apps that are on my phone to finish second in the division, and I think that's a fair pick. This is not like two out of the last three years where the Colts were the preseason pick to win the AFC South, and Titans fans were pissed because they thought, it was unfair. I don't think this is unfair to think that Jacksonville's the best team right now going into the season, barring some significant injury to to Trevor Lawrence. They've got the best quarterback. They broke through last year and kind of built some cohesion. Um, they've got a, a coach who's who's won a Super Bowl and Peterson, um, and they seem like the best team. Their Super Bowl odds are ridiculously bad. They're picked. Widely as the fourth or fifth least likely team to to make the Super Bowl. Um, now they don't care internally about external expectations. They'll tell you that over and over. Though guys are aware of how they are viewed around the country and how they are talked about or not talked about on NFL Live and and uh, you know whatever other shows. Um, that that they see or hear about from their family and friends. The one thing I think that that is um, a positive out of this is that the Titans, as a franchise, and and the guys who remain from um, you know previous seasons, particularly the the longer term guys, thinking particularly of Kevin Byard in that role, uh, Derek Henry to a degree though he hasn't talked about it as much have traditionally led a team that's performed probably its best when the expectations are bad um you know and when they hear that the Colts are going to win the division two out of the last 3 years rise to the occasion and and win it Um, So I'm not saying they're winning the division from the Jaguars, but I'm saying I won't be surprised to see them thrive and cite uh, low expectations because this team has frequently done that and told us about how the bad expectations, um, the things that they've heard people talk about, are the sort of things that serve to motivate them Now, I think they should be motivated. I've always said this by, uh, you know, paychecks and uh, by the expectations of going to work and doing a good job, like everybody should be motivated by. But, um, you know, whatever works. I hate hearing from Travis Kelsey after the Chiefs win the Super Bowl that nobody expected them to win the Super Bowl because they were two-and-a-half-point dogs to uh, to Philadelphia when the Chiefs have been everybody's favorite team for the last four years. It's just nonsensical junk. Sponsored here on the Paul Kuharski podcast by Jaspers, a fine establishment on West End Avenue just uh, off of 40, You should go there to have a business lunch or some time at the bar to catch up on your favorite podcast like this one uh, and do some reading, um, fill your belly, uh, have a cocktail. It's a good place uh, to take a date uh, or have a date night in the evening or have a family night. And uh, you can go out there. You can play some Papa Shot. You can play some shuffleboard and let off some steam. If you're unable to to make it a full go, they've got a great grab-and-go market where you can uh, stop by, grab some stuff, and take it home with you to get the best of the experience, but uh, at your home instead of theirs. Jaspers on West End, just off of 40. I can't recommend it highly enough and thank them for uh, their support of this podcast my mom who is 88 years old has been with us for a couple weeks and will be with us for a couple more weeks it's her her first trip since my dad passed away at the beginning of january and it's been nice to have her and um challenging to uh to find things to help keep her occupied, though she just needs a a little routine. And so uh, I made a huge gaffe early in her uh, stay with us as I was getting ready to head out to do some work-related stuff. And she was reading on her iPad and uh, planning to keep herself busy for a couple hours. And I asked her if she wanted something to drink. And she said, yes. And I looked in the refrigerator and I saw a uh, flavored seltzer, pineapple lemonade. And I asked if she wanted that. And she said, that sounded good. And so I cracked it open and gave that to her. That was maybe 1030 or 11 o'clock in the morning. A few hours later, I got a text from my wife. Do you realize that you gave your mother a hard seltzer? No, no, I did not realize that. Truly is, in fact, an alcoholic seltzer five percent by volume. Um, my mom might be up for that at dinner time, but uh, and she'll drink some vodka, as is the uh, Russian beverage of choice and uh, our heritage, but not, uh, I don't think she was looking for that at 11. So I asked my wife, Did you tell her? and she said, No, I didn't tell her. So, um uh, I got home later that night and we were getting ready for dinner. And I said, by the way, mom, that, uh, that seltzer I gave you um, turns out that uh, an alcoholic beverage And she said, well, it's no wonder I was so tired all day today. So I've learned a little bit about hard seltzer and about examining uh, refrigerated beverages in my house more closely when I have an elderly guest in the house. Um, and there was just one truly in there, so no risk of any further. Um, and if she liked it a lot, she wasn't getting another one unless we put it on the shopping list, which we have not. That was a free shout-out for truly. I went against bussing in the bull busing uh the busing with the boys rules. Um, So I previewed that Blake Bettingfield of uh, PaulKuharski.com, who does some consulting around the league and uh, helps get some guys ready for draft season, is uh, going to join me here. I'm happy that he is. He writes for PaulKuharski.com and has for some time. After 19 years of scouting um, with the Titans, the final six as the college scouting director, so he worked for Floyd Reese. He worked for Mike Reinfeld. He worked for Rustin Webster. He worked one year for John Robinson before uh, they parted ways. Uh, very interested in hearing from him on a couple of topics. So uh, let's bring him in. <laughs> And with that, we bring in Blake Bettingfield. Hopefully you're familiar with him from uh, reading his fine work at PaulKuharski.com. There's a fourth mention of my name. Blake, how are you doing? Thanks for coming in.
1: I'm doing great. Good to be here.
0: So I want to talk to you first about Colton Dowell, the the one, uh, well, the second addition to the wide receiving core outside of Chris Moore. Seventh-round pick, obviously can only have so big an expectation about a seventh-rounder. An intriguing guy, though, and you bring us uh, particular insight into him because you worked with him. Um, So I want to find out what working with him entails. First off, how did you connect
1: with him? So I work with a facility in the spring training players from college, to the nfl two pro days combine that type of thing x3 is a facility that's located here in nashville and fort myers florida there's probably a total of 110 players uh, between the two uh, locations colton was a player that i identified in the fall leading up to the spring and kind of recruited him to come to nashville and train with our speed coaches and i do a lot with the players I do combine training, interview training, also just generally talking to them about the process that they're going to go through leading up to the draft, pro days, combine, all-star games, that type of thing. Colton came into the facility in Nashville in January, right around January 2nd, and trained all the way through the pro day that he had at Tennessee Martin. And then he had a second pro day two days later at the University of Tennessee, which was great benefit to him uh, as an athlete. Colton is a six-foot-two and seven-eighths receiver, so really six-foot-three, 212 pounds, a very explosive, fast uh, athlete, and he really showed that during the training. Now, he got significantly better uh, over those three that three-month period with us at X3, but one thing he had was a lot of raw ability, and he was able to showcase that at UT Martin Pro Day and then again at the University of Tennessee. At Tennessee, he's with Jalen Hyatt, Hendon Hooker. You know, he's with Cedric Tillman. He's with other legitimate prospects, and he's showing out. That's what got him on the radar a lot with a lot of NFL teams. I got a lot of calls about him, and and he probably went from a free agent-type player to a draftable commodity because of the athleticism that he showed and the upside. Great kid, uh, you know, super intense, good worker. Uh, The Titans are getting a player with a lot of raw ability that just has an upside to him that he hasn't seen yet because he just now is developing. You get a lot of these players that come from a small school like UT Martin versus a player that comes from Georgia, LSU, Alabama, Tennessee, that has all the necessary training uh, things at those schools. UT Martin doesn't doesn't mean they don't have good coaches because they do it just means they didn't have the training table that that he had that he'll have in the NFL didn't have the uh intense uh nutritionist and that type of thing when he came to the facility at x3 he gained weight and he gained speed and explosiveness and and he's ready to take that to the NFL now
0: I know you follow well, you know things that, all, all the way down the high school level here around Nashville did you have familiarity with him all the way back to Wilson County or where did he first catch your attention that, Hey, this is a guy I'm going to track a little bit and may be interested in for, for X three, how far back did he catch your attention as somebody that you started among?
1: You know, I knew, I knew of him coming through the high school ranks here, but didn't really pay attention to him until this season. Saw him in a couple of games on film, evaluated him as a player and thought he had that upside. Thought he had the upside to be a, a either a priority free agent or late round draftable player with the ability to kind of grow, and you could see it in his play how he progressed over the a few years there at UT Martin, but then really taking off over the spring and that kind of that workout phase of the of the NFL draft process, he did an outstanding job, and and I think he's really got a lot of upside to him.
0: I know you may be limited in what you could say here, so this, be be clear about that. How many teams are calling you during this process about him? What kind of questions are they asking? Um, Did he hear from those teams during the sixth or seventh round? Or were they calling him about, hey, if your name doesn't get called, we want to talk contract. And were the Titans uh, one of those teams? Did, Did you have an inkling the Titans were interested
1: in him? Yes, so leading up to the draft process, right after the the pro day at the University of Tennessee, I probably got twenty of the thirty two teams contacting me about him. That's and and it's, right.
0: How, how many guys did you get that?
1: No, not that many. I mean, of the players, the hundred and ten players that we had, and we probably had twenty something drafted. He, um he probably uh, garnered as much interest because he was such a late riser and and it wasn't late because he didn't have the ability just he wasn't known and and he he got on the radar at the University of Tennessee then the Titans invited him to the local workout. At uh, at the Titans facility, and he got to be around the head coach and general manager and the scouts a little bit more, and really endeared himself to that group. So I did talk to the Titans a, a number of times about him, and a lot of it was just kind of personal background, how he trained, how he developed over that time, and 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 that, and that was kind of the talk throughout uh, the NFL. Really, is is what what did he look like when he showed up? Was it different than when he ended? And there was some physical differences, but I, I'll tell you what, I really liked the kid because his work ethic was second to none of the 110 players that, that were there. He was a very intense competitor, uh, really wanted to do well every single day that I saw him, and uh, you know, kind of a joy to be around too.
0: This relative athletic score, seemed, it's rising in popularity, certainly with the media. It's a nice number that encompasses everything that goes into a guy. He's a 9.78 out of 10. That's 69th out of 3,026 guys at receiver since 1987, the year I graduated high school. Uh, and that includes a 44240. Do you think this RAS is uh, becoming a thing for teams because it's a consistent monitoring number that you can? you know, just like a 40 monitor year to year to year, comparing guys over a course of time. And how much does a number like that help a guy like Colton down?
1: Well, I think it does help. And and I think the numbers are important because it it really, it it can validate what you see on film or it can bring questions to you. I always say as a scout, you ask questions. Why is a guy developed? Why is a guy producing? Why isn't he? Uh, Who is he producing against? Is he fast at pro day, but he's not fast on the field? Why is that? You know, there's a series of questions that you ask yourself while you're evaluating a player, but I think that score is important because it's just another piece of the puzzle that you you sit there and you go, okay, that's a very high number. Did he play that fast on film? If he didn't, why not? And and why did he not look like that at UT Martin? So uh, those are just questions you have to ask yourself. And I think that score is important, just like a 40-yard dash or a vertical or a broad jump. But, you know, some of the things that relative athletic score is important, but but you always look at certain numbers. You want to see the 40-time correlate with a vertical jump and the broad jump and some of those short shuttles uh, skills, those lateral mobility uh, drills. Is he a straight-line athlete? Well, straight-line athletes can run fast, jump high, and jump out, but they can't move side to side. Is he a stiff player? He's not. He moved well in all the drills, and that's why that score was so high. And And I like that because it kind of encompasses everything they do athletically.
0: And he played to all these numbers at Martin, I take it.
1: He did. And when they had to go up against better competition, and I'm talking about Division one level competition, he didn't look out of place. He looked like he fit. And they had a solid quarterback who's in the Rams camp right now, uh, dresser win that. Uh, so he had a good quarterback throw into him as well. So, you know, um, just because the level of play didn't mean he he was below the, that standard. He could have fit in at, at, a, at a number of big schools.
0: Who's he remind you of, Who, who if you had to project
1: him? You know, and, and I, I kind of did this in a number of different ways. The old Titan way, he reminded me of Justin McCarron's a little bit. Justin McCarron's came out of northern Illinois, 6'2", 210 pounds, could run in the four-fours. Justin was probably a little bit more straight line than Colton Dowell was, but a very similar type player. Um, you know, I think today Donovan Peoples-Jones with Cleveland Browns is a similar type uh, skill set that he has. Good size, good strength. You know, the one thing that Colton's gonna have to learn to do that he was able to get away with at UT Martin, that Donovan Peoples Jones played at Michigan. So he was had to do that on a daily basis, is learn to play with tight coverage. He could run away from guys on the Martin level. He could, he could, uh the corners would play off of him, scared of his speed deep. So he could under he could knew how to work underneath some of the corners' routes. If you played at a bigger school like uh, People's Jones, you had to be able to uh, play with a corner in your face, and those are just little transitions that he's going to have to make moving up to a bigger level. But I think from the Titans side, he reminded me of Justin McCarran's He really does in his in his gait and the way he runs his routes, that type of thing. And on the NFL level, Donovan People's Jones would Cleveland, we
0: know there's there's opportunity in the Titans wide receiving core. What's realistic to expect? from a 7th round pick coming out of a, out of a small school no matter that he did well in his his big opportunity
1: not much this year i mean you don't you don't want to put him on the field too much this year even though they have such a drastic need at the position he's not going to be a player that's going to go out and run you know 35 40% of the snaps i think they're probably going to have packages for him where he can have success whether he shows success versus zone coverage or man, whatever it is, and work those uh, work and have that success so he can continue to build on something, but you don't want to put him in uh, a situation where he's playing too heavy and our high number of snaps. And he's not having the success that you want him to have as he grows and develops
0: special teams guy. In the meantime,
1: definitely, you know, he has that mentality, has the size, he has the speed, that athleticism to play on special teams. Like a Rayshon McMath, like a, a Westbrook Aquina, those kind of size guys and ability, so he can be an active player, be a fourth or fifth receiver, and cover kicks.
0: So, last thing on the Colton Dow uh, part of this, I, I think I know the number one guy on this list, but you were with the Titans for 19 years. The best seventh rounders that that the team brought in during that time, I, I would think Cortland Finnegan's number one. I'm having trouble thinking who's number two.
1: You know, I I, I love when you, that question because that's the scouts round. Fifth, sixth, seventh round is the scouts round. But we had a lot of success. Cortland Finnegan was one. Cortland Finnegan was a safety at Samford University and returner. And, you know, when we drafted him, we brought him in to be a nickel corner and uh, not really be a returner, but be a special teams player. And he kind of embraced that role from a physical standpoint, but also his mentality to play up close to the line of scrimmage. Eugene Amano was another one that we got out of a Southeast Missouri State, was a guard center at SEMO, came in. We knew right off the bat that he was going to play, and he was going to be a good backup in year one, and I think he went on to have a seven- or eight-year career. You know, a couple of the other ones that I liked was Mark Mariani, another receiver. You know, out of Montana, ended up making the Pro Bowl as a returner, and that was going to be his that. role. Um, you know, you look at some of the guys like uh, Carlos Hall, way back in the in the early 2000s. Javon Kurz tears his fifth metatarsal. Carlos Hall's a seventh round pick out of Arkansas, comes in and has eight sacks his rookie year. In today's NFL, with a pass rush premium, Carlos Hall would have never made it to the seventh round. You're talking about a six foot four, 265 pound good athlete he would have been taken in the fourth round fifth round that type of thing but we were able to get him in the seventh round Kerry Williams is another a corner with length and ability that really didn't play for the Titans we cut him loose and he ended up having an eight-year career in the NFL a lot of time a long time with the Ravens but those are some of the seventh round players Mike Otto was another one that played I think six seven years as a backup offensive lineman but that's where you make your money having that depth. Having that player, if he can start, that's fantastic. If he can't, then you have to be able to have that depth player that can stay on your roster for a number of years.
0: All right, well, you gave me a good segue into the second thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is how scouting works. Um, so you talked about those late rounds being rounds for the scouts, and Rand Carthon certainly came into the Titans talking about that. though he didn't give us examples of 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 that or come out naming scouts having, you know, this guy was, you know, so-and-so was really on the table for this guy. And and we liked what he said about him. We know they have an assistant coach that was a a relatively new guy who, who was at UT Martin, who certainly helped Colton Dow. Um, But they don't talk about it the way they used to. uh, and, And I don't know how ran is about that. My personal opinion about John Robinson was, you know, he took credit for the hits and he took blame for the fails, but he wasn't he wasn't saying uh you know Lashawn Sims of a fifth round corner that they got some some good work out of. He wasn't saying, hey, this scout over here is the reason that we got LaShawn Sims. He was perfectly happy. You know, he, he was the face of of everything that that the scouting department did, good or bad. Um, and and I don't know how much that's the case around the league. I did see an article this week from um, where was San Francisco, where Rand came from, where they had Adam Peters, who was an original candidate for the Titans job who pulled out relatively quickly, who the 49ers let speak, who gave, you know, great detail about how they picked each guy and, you know, which scout liked them and how many reports they had written about him and stuff real behind the looking glass stuff that I, that I thought was great in your time with the Titans. How, how was it in terms of that? And what's your perception of how it is now?
1: You know, I think back when I first started, Floyd Reese was the general manager. Floyd had a great idea of the top 100, 120 players. Okay. After that, after the third round, which basically took away the, the majority of those players, he gave the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh round to the scouts. And he trusted those scouts trusted the area guy first. That was what was important. The area scout, who's the first person in a school does the most work of any scout, not the director, not the the personnel guy, but the area scout does the most work of any scout on an individual player. They're going to know them best. Maybe not your best evaluator, but they're going to know the player best where they fit, how they fit on the team, where they fit within the scheme, that type of thing is very important. The background second, you know, i, I worked with Rustin Wester, who was also a scout-heavy type drafter. He gave the fifth, sixth, seventh round to the scouts, even though he had a, probably a broader knowledge of the top 200 players. But you're going to have 255 players in the draft. The GM's not going to know these players. He's going to have a cursory overview of a lot of those players, but he's not going to know in detail. So to make that sixth and seventh round pick, it's kind of hard for a general manager just because of the lack of knowledge that they're going to have. They're going to have the reports and that type of thing, but they're not going to have the info, the eyes on them, eyes at a game, at practice, multiple different times, maybe an all-star game, maybe a low-level all-star game where the general manager was not there because his team was in the playoffs. So those things are factors when you go into picking those later round players, uh, especially those last two rounds, that sixth and seventh round was real important. So it just depends on the general manager. You know, with John Robinson, he wanted to make those picks himself. You had to have a very strong argument, whether it was the first round to the seventh, to be able to break through what he thought he wanted in a player. He would watch some film of some of the later round guys, but again, not going to have that view that an area scout or even a regional director would have of an individual player. And I think that's why you didn't see as much success in those later rounds. You had a couple of hits. Here and there, but you didn't have that great success like maybe under Floyd Reese, who had a long tenured uh, relationship with his scouts. And some of those scouts have been there way before even Floyd got there. But you had a lot of hits in those in those latter rounds too uh, that had great success for a long time. Robert Smith, Justin Hartwig, just to name a few of some of the guys that played uh, over five, six, seven years and started with the team. Um, not just counting those seventh rounders that I mentioned. So it's all set up with the the general manager first. And then do you trust your scouts? Do you trust the evaluation part? Do you trust the background and their ability to identify and put value on that player? Value means the round and where they fit. And the round kind of correlates to what you think of the player.
0: What do you think about Rand keeping, at least going into his second year second draft the second round of personnel stuff his first season keeping the the back not just the backbone keeping the entire college scouting this is this is the six college scouts the two national scouts and his college scouting director all intact who are all Robinson guys or Webster-Reinfeld guys even from before that I think a lot of people are curious about, you know, does that say that John Robinson was so in control that these guys weren't even heard? Does that say, you know, what to you does it say about the state of the scouting? department?
1: You know, I, I know Rand had that opportunity from January to April to kind of evaluate the staff and, and, you know, the ones that John brought in or the ones that Rustin brought in, um, you know, he, it, it kind of tells me right off the bat that they're going to be information gatherers. And he was comfortable with the, the information that they gathered, um, you know, going through that process, whether it's the the final couple of weeks leading up to the draft and, and they got to have their say, how much of a say did they have? Uh, what kind of impact did they have with their words and the ability to sell their player? And I say sell their player because that's really what you're doing to a general manager. You're selling your player to him, not only in the report that you write, but how, much emphasis you put on. I really want this player for my team. You know, to take a Colton Dowell, that scout had to stand up and say, That's a guy I want. That's a guy I believe has a chance to make the 53 man roster and develop if we treat him right. And this is what he needs to do to develop. So, you know, I, I think that. I'm a scout fan. I always am. I hate when scouts get fired. I, I, I can't stand it. But, you know, it's 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 necessary sometimes if guys aren't doing their job. And I was a, a manager of the scouts as a director of scouting, and sometimes you had to let people go that just were not doing their job. He felt they were. He let Ryan Cowden go, brought in his um, assistant general manager and Anthony Robinson from the Falcons. And I've known Anthony for a long time and think Anthony will do a, a really good job. He's, a, he's a kind of a detailed scout easy to get along with personality. is going to work well with the scouts underneath, but he's going to have a thumb on him too. Cause he's got a little toughness to him and a little grit that he's, he's worked his way up through the ranks. He knows what it takes. And, and I expect him to be that way, but that's really what they need. You know, there's been some hits and misses, whether it was the GM that missed them all, the personnel director that just got let go or, or the scouts, there needs to be some, some detailed work on some of the background and some of the, some of the stuff coming out. So, Rand feels comfortable with it. Um, he's going to have to deal with it, you know, whether it's through one free agency now, probably a second and, and a second draft. So that's your that's your starting point as a general manager. And and Rand's decided this group is is good for him. So I'm happy to see scouts didn't get let let go because I always hate to see it, but um, sometimes it's needed.
0: Finally, uh, I just want to get your opinion on something I talked about early that's been a conversation topic this week we tend to all feel a lot better about the offensive line because they've addressed it. Right. We know Skaransky, you know, looks to be a guy that's going to have a, a bright future. Maybe he's the best offensive lineman in, in very short order for this team, but the other three guys, there are question marks about Mike Herndon brought this up, right? We don't know about Andrew, uh, Andre Dillard. He, he wasn't playing in Philadelphia for a very good Coach on a very good team, Brunskill from from San Francisco sat last year, got got beat out, and uh, Duncan, you know, is a is a middle round draft pick who you know could could be good depth, but you you have no assurances about him. We all feel better about offensive line because largely they brought in bodies, but three of the four bodies we have no assurances about. Meanwhile, we all feel miserable about wide receiver because they did not bring in bodies. Uh, they brought in two bodies: one that you talked about, who, who's unlikely to be much of a contributor in the first year, and the other, in Chris Moore, who's very much a replacement level guy. Should we be as uh, you know the the overwhelming feeling amongst fans and al- analysts is, well, they've done a lot on the offensive line. And they've done nothing at at wide receiver. But the reason we feel that way is because they brought in people, not necessarily Blake that they brought in good people.
1: You know, I think that's one way to look at it. I think the grass is always greener and you're always hopeful that these new pieces are going to be better than what you had. But what you had in the past was a Taylor Lewan who was a left tackle, Roger Saffold, who was a left guard, Ben Jones, who was the center, Nate Davis, right guard, obviously a revolving door, right tackle, but In this case, you've got Andre Dillard, who may be the left tackle or the left guard. Peter Skoronsky, who may be the left guard or the left tackle. Aaron Brewer, let's hope he can play center because he wasn't uh, really a starting NFL caliber left guard. And at right guard, you have Brunskill, who's been a career sixth offensive lineman. And then you got Petit Ferrer, who had good film and bad film. So you don't have a cohesive five-man group that you're sitting there comfortable with right now. You have probably better athletes. Taylor Lewan was an elite athlete, but he's playing on a bad knee the last couple of years. Andre Dillard's a really good athlete. First-round pick. Wasn't a first-round graded player. Pass protector at Washington State that really worked out well. Rose to the first round, but I would say most scouts, including myself, had a second-round grade on it. That's not a bad grade. That's a good grade. But not a. even though he went in the first round, not that kind of caliber player. Didn't pan out over the four years he was there. I think Skoronski is going to be a good player. You know, probably a really good guard and a adequate left tackle. Brewer is still going to be an undersized center. Whether he was an undersized left guard, undersized center, they're just going to move the heavy guy on top of him at the over the nose now. So Brunskill's kind of a key as well because he has to be a 17-game starter. He can no longer be that sixth-man offensive lineman because there isn't another player behind them that's ready to play. I think Duncan's that developmental-type player kind of we talked about with Dow a little bit, an athlete in a big body that looks good, and you say, okay, we can develop him, and maybe in a year from now, he's a starter, whether it's inside or outside. He's got feet. He's got size. He's got some strength. And you just need a more consistent player. I think that's probably the one thing that kept him from being in the upper half of the draft with his athleticism. He's just not a consistent player. And Petit Ferrer really has to go to another level. And he he needs to get the rookiness out of him and play to a to a better level. And that's going to be tough because you've got a five-man group that hasn't played together. So I don't, I wouldn't have expectations of having a better group. You're just going to have a different group.
0: I think Vrabel really set him up to, to himself up to look bad by indicating when the draft concluded, oh, something's still coming at wide receiver. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the personnel gathering season is largely over unless you make a Julio Jones trade, and they don't have the resources to make a trade like that. DeAndre Hopkins is a danger just the same way Julio Jones was a danger. Some of these other names floating out there would cost a heck of a lot. I don't know why San Francisco would be trading Brandon Ayuk. And other than that, you know, maybe you get super lucky that somebody cuts somebody, but you're relying on somebody else doing something. It's out of your control at this stage. I think he's trying to throw the fans a bone at that stage saying, well, I didn't realize how pissed off people were going to be. We're still going to do something. There's, there's not much that can be done unless you get lucky.
1: No, there's not. Unless somebody gets cut like a DeAndre Hopkins and you can work a deal out. But you know, they're they're still strapped money-wise and they're now strapped for future draft choices. They don't have the full allotment of of at least high draft choices that you would want going into next year's draft because they they traded away. So um that's going to be a tough situation to be able to trade future draft choices, and you don't have the player to trade uh in a one-for-one trade. So you're kind of in a tough spot with. This is what you're going to play with right now unless you get lucky and somebody gets cut that you can maybe negotiate a, a deal with and at least give them playing time. That's the one thing they have. If a, if a good receiver gets cut because of salary, they can offer playing time. They can offer production because they, they have a chance with a veteran quarterback, a good running back, and an, an opportunity for a starting receiver. Not the other 31 teams don't have that opportunity. The Titans do. They've got one guy. Uh, That's a legitimate starter in Traylon Burks, and he's got to stay healthy. He's got to develop as well, but they have an opportunity to start on that other side.
0: My great friend, Blake Bettingfield, and uh, a great piece of paulkuharski.com. Don't miss his work. Appreciate you joining me, Blake. Great stuff, uh, and I think people really enjoy hearing your perspective on these things. Have a good rest of the week.
1: You bet. I enjoyed it.
0: Great stuff there again from Blake. And I can't thank him enough for making some time for us today. Hope you enjoyed that. I think it was uh, very informative. Um, Schedule coming out Thursday night. You may be listening to this after that. Still valuable. Ravens at, quote unquote, at Titans on October 15th at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. (coughs) Excuse me In London uh, Titans second trip to London As part of the international series So it's a You know a a good game In that it's a rivalry game In that it's a a good appointment With some uh, A good opponent Excuse me With some star power um, In the shape of um, Mr. Jackson Lamar Jackson Who had a big contract Dispute um, that has been resolved. And so, uh, very curious to see, um, what the Ravens look like this year. Um, I think the Titans, you know, uh, you'd prefer that gate to be home because I think people, uh, Titans fans really dislike the Ravens. Um, it would be drawn to that game in Nashville at Nissan stadium as it heads into, uh, it's few final years as the Titans home stadium, the last one before construction begins on the new indoor venue. But um, you take what the league assigns you. I think the Titans had the ability to preserve uh, one home game in Nashville, and they had enough to choose from that the Ravens were not that one. So um, I look forward to going back to London and uh, and seeing magnificent new um, Premier League venue for Tottenham um, and what NFL football looks like in there. Um, and we'll know uh, Thursday night if, if the Titans have selected to take their bye um, the week after um, that game. On October 15th, or if they choose to have it somewhere later in the season, that, that'll be an interesting decision. I want to close here with uh, news of the obvious. And uh, I have this conversation with uh, some of the other people involved in covering the Titans who who share my objection to some of these quote unquote stories being stories, but they don't share my fervor for expressing to you and to their audiences that you have to um, discount these things as news report this week. uh, It's fine. If somebody wants to report it, the ESPN reported that Ryan Tannehill's going to start week one. We all know Ryan Tannehill's going to start week one. Uh, Ryan Tannehill. I mean, barring some big injury in the, in the league at quarterback for a team. That's hoping to make a, a, a big run that needs a veteran quarterback. If Ryan Tannehill's on the Titans Ryan Tannehill is the starting quarterback for the Titans. Why, when somebody reports this, that's fine. If you want to report the obvious, you can look foolish for reporting the obvious. Why is everybody that's aggregator pick this up and treat it as news? They're picking it up and treating it as news because you're clicking on it and and treating it as if it's news. And it's not news. Stop clicking on it. Stop acting like it's significant. Stop acting like a report that Harold Landry is going to be ready for opening day is news. Do you know about football? Do you know about ACLs? You should. You're a Titans fan. Uh, A year after an ACL, and it'll be a year plus a week for Harold Landry, you should be fine on an ACL. If there's news that Harold Landry's had a setback, then that's a story. If there's news that Harold Landry's on track to return, that's not a story. Harold Landry's expected to be back. You know when Harold Landry's expectation to be back for opening day of 2023 began? when he tore his ACL the Thursday or the Friday before opening day, a week before opening day in 2022. Are we smart enough to handle that stuff or are we not? I I mean, my frustration with these things being treated as news is simply never going to end. And I, I, I think my audience is generally smart enough to get those things my audience for these podcasts extends beyond my audience for Paul, at paulkuharski.com. It shouldn't. You should be coming and joining me. You see the price if you're watching on YouTube. If you're listening uh, on uh, one of the podcast platforms, please come join the smartest Titans fans around at paulkuharski.com. $5.99 a month, 12 months for the price of 11 a steal at that price, and I'm not going to feed you nonsense that you already know that Ryan Tannehill is starting at quarterback in week one or that Harold Landry is going to be just fine and will be on the field on opening day. It's a waste of conversation space. Uh, Thanks to Jaspers for sponsoring. You should go there, get the big bowl of bolognese my favorite thing on the menu it's good to see and talk with you and until next time as always don't block the box but be sure to lock your locks